Hello, I'm Francis Seeley from GlobalNet21, and I'd like to welcome you to this podcast today. This is one of the many podcasts we do where we look at some of the big issues that face us, and today we're going to look at climate change and what we're trying to do to address it, and whether in fact we're doing it fast enough. Now we know that we have to adapt to climate change because it's happening anyhow, and somehow or the other we have to mitigate against climate change, preventing it happening as fast as it will happen by changes in lifestyles and so on. But we also want to ask whether this isn't enough and whether we need to look at bigger solutions. And this means solutions like what is called geoengineering. And in this webinar, we'll look at that, and particularly at solar radiation. We'll find out more about that as the webinar progresses. But what we really want to ask is whether these are possible, whether it's necessary, and whether there are major pitfalls in geoengineering because of the unintended consequences of what will happen. And we also want to look at whether there is enough regulation globally around geoengineering, whether there's adequate governance, and to what extent citizens can also be engaged in the decisions around such a major project as geoengineering. And to help us with this, we have Simon Nicholson, who is an assistant professor in the School of International Service, and he's done a lot of work on this. Now, this webinar is one in the series of Conversations Across Borders, and Marina Panetto will be helping me in this webinar, and she is also helping me in the whole series. We're doing it together in the whole series of Conversations Across Borders. Anyhow, Let's get started with this webinar right now. And the first thing that we ask Simon is something about his background and the work that he does. I'm an academic based at American University in Washington, DC. I grew up in New Zealand, found my way to the States later in life. um, And I spend most of my time now thinking about climate change. Okay, Marina. I, uh, why, why are you so passionate about um, um, climate change? And I, was, I would like to frame it, this uh, um, question with something that I wrote on your biography, and it was, his work on climate engineering is informed by a deep sense of concern about the lack of effective response to climate change coming from mainstream political and social processes. Yeah, I mean, we're recording this interview at a strange time, of course. Um, people aren't thinking about much beyond what's going on with the COVID crisis. Uh, but if there's one thing that we can learn from what's going on right now and apply it to the time that we can imagine beyond the COVID crisis, it's that we, we, we need to be prepared for bad things. And we need to trust scientists when they tell us that these bad things are coming, right? So when it comes to something like climate change, the alarm bells have been, have been sounded by the, um, the scientific community for decades. Um, and yet we as a society and certainly our leadership are just not taking us in the right direction. And so, you know, I, I, I approach the study of climate change and my work on it, not with optimism, because I think optimism is too hard to, to kind of bring to bear onto something that's, that's this profound, uh, but instead with hopefulness. Uh, as, as one of my colleagues has said, optimism is the resource that you get to draw on when the odds are in your favor. Hope is what you need to cultivate when the odds are stacked against you. And when it comes to climate change, that's where we are. 
But one of the odds stuck against you is that uh, experts are questioned a great deal. And, um, you know, there's some people, a guy called Davis has written a book about the fact that uh, we're living in an age now where emotion is taken over from rationality. People don't believe what the experts say. They don't follow reason. And social networks use sentiment analysis rather than reason. So in a way, you may be optimistic, but you have an up uphill struggle, don't you? That's for sure. Yeah. And, and much of my work is about trying to find avenues for effective change in the face of something as complex as the climate situation. Um, when, you, when you think about the way climate change is typically discussed, Francis, um, what we tend to see is people shouting from the polls. You've got people who say climate change is the worst thing that the world is facing. We need to take action. You've got other people saying it's some sort of hoax. Why would you ever, 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 ever tell me that this is something I need to pay attention to? Um, and it's just, it's, it's people just kind of screaming past each other. Um, when social change actually happens, it's when motivated people find levers of power in society um, and get together and start to make a difference. That's a, that's a different proposition than trying to convince everybody um, that they need to somehow get on board with a particular agenda. Okay. The, the, um, today, the IPCC posted on Twitter, uh, for example, there is no definitive way to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 above the pre-industrial levels. There's not yeah. one way. There are probably many ways. Uh, my question is, why do we need to try to keep 1.5 degrees? And, and, and what mm. kind of uh, possibilities do we have to do it? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Marina. Um, so the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's the United Nations body that doesn't do its own science, but rather reviews the state of scientific knowledge when it comes to climate change. Um, and the IPCC is what the research community and all of us should look to for our understandings of what's going on um, in terms of the climate system. Um, what the scientists have been telling us for a long time is that the warmer the world gets, the more risk we face. And so um, when, when you talk about something like the 1.5 degree target, which is in the, in the Paris Agreement, which the international community has, has put in place to try and galvanize action around climate change, that 1.5 target says 1.5 degrees Celsius of average warming above pre-industrial averages is already going to be risky, but 1.5 is better than two and two degrees is better than three. So everything that we can do to try and limit the amount of warming in the system reduces climate risk for all of us. Um, so how do we do that? Well, the, the most straightforward way is to stop putting greenhouse gases, the things that actually warm the atmosphere into, into the atmosphere. But that tweet you referenced, Nerina, is saying uh, just limiting greenhouse gas emissions alone is going to be tough because of the, the difficulty mobilizing social action and getting politicians to move in the right direction. And so that's why me and some others are looking at a, a, a range of other things that might be brought about in addition to trying, uh, trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So there are three approaches out there to what's happening in terms of uh, the increase in temperature. One is adaption which we have to do because it's going to happen anyhow. Even 1.5 is pretty serious. The second thing is mitigation. Um, and that may be about changing our lifestyles, and planting trees and things like that and carbon sinks. 
And the other thing is geoengineering. So are you saying that we now have to move into the phase of geoengineering because mitigation in the way we've been doing it is not working? Well, I'm, I'm saying we need to understand what geoengineering might offer. And that's not uh, necessary to use it, but to appreciate it as a potential tool. So um, let, me, let me define the, the terms that I'm um, just, just building on what you said there, Francis. So mitigation is this idea of keeping greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Uh, and so one way to do that is to change energy systems and food systems and so forth so that we use less fossil fuels and, and other things that are producing greenhouse gases. Another way potentially is to try and suck some of that carbon dioxide, which is in the atmosphere, back out of the atmosphere and do something with it. Turn it into a product or stick it underground. Uh, and so this, this is so-called carbon dioxide removal or greenhouse gas removal. Um, and in addition to traditional emissions abatement, that might be a part of what needs to happen now on the mitigation side, right? So expanding the notion of mitigation to also include drawing greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Adaptation is essential, um, and those who are most vulnerable need to adapt more um, and adapt faster than those of us who live with relative privilege. <clears throat> so we need to take account of those factors as we're thinking about climate change. Um, and then, as you suggested, Francis, there is this third possibility, which, which some folks call geoengineering. Uh, geoengineering is about trying to reflect sunlight back into space before it can warm the planet. And this sounds like a pretty wacky proposition, but we see evidence of the efficacy of this type of approach when we look at natural analogs. Um, so when a volcano erupts, it spews stuff into the atmosphere that reflects sunlight. And when that happens, temperatures go down. And so this, this has led scientists to think, is, are, are there ways for human beings to basically replicate what happens when a volcano erupts? This is one of the propositions that is now being talked about. But, but uh, this... Uh, um all this this uh, this kind of approaches that are beside these mitigations um it sides with, with uh, um trying to um grab the um, um carbon dioxide in the in the air or mm. with this reflection of the of the sun they, are, they have a lot of um challenges and there are different challenges there are technical challenges and so we do, do we have the the technology to do it first. Second, what kind of um, challenges do we have be beside the technology? As so what would it mean if we would choose to go this kind of path? And in one of your presentation, you, you mentioned also that it's about the, um, the question of equality. Who is going to decide <laughs> what we do yes. and how much do we do about it? Yes, 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 yes. Right, so if, if geoengineering were ever to be used, then it, it, it would be a really foolish idea to try and use it all by itself, right? So the only sensible way to talk about geoengineering is as part of a portfolio of response options. Mitigation has to be the thing you do first. Um, adaptation is essential, as Francis has pointed out. Um, and then maybe geoengineering can buy some time for these other measures to take hold. That's the only kind of sensible way to imagine using geoengineering. Uh, and even, even at that relatively small scale as part of a package, um, as you're suggesting, Lorena, there are lots of potential challenges or risks that go along with geoengineering. Um, the most obvious is that it can serve as a distraction from the other work that needs to happen. Right? So if, if I come to you and say, hey, we've been talking about climate change, it's a big deal, 
you've got two options. One option is change everything about your lifestyle, turn off the lights, shiver in the dark, um, or let me um, throw some magic dust into the atmosphere and make the problem go away. It's very easy to kind of gravitate to what looks like a, uh, an easy technological fix, right? If it's, if it's sold in that fashion. Um, so that, that's called um, the moral hazard problem. It's a, it's a distraction from the work that really needs to be done. Um, in addition to that, there are physical risks attached to any of these sorts of ideas if they were utilized at large scale, right? So um, geoengineering is a whole different package of potential options. One option is put reflected particles into the upper atmosphere that would potentially cool the planet. Another option is um, artificially brighten marine clouds over the ocean, make clouds whiter, and this, this could cool regions of the planet. Um, let's uh, potentially grow more reflective crops down at ground level. This would reflect sunlight back into the space before it can be captured by greenhouse gases. The planet gets cooler. But each of those different options has risks attached to it. So, I mean, what you're interested in is solar radiation, isn't it, particularly, which is reflecting the sun back. Um, yep. Yeah, you say that, that all of them have risks, and it's the pitfalls that people worry about. Um, they feel that, you know, if you do geoengineering and if you make a mistake, it's a big mistake. It's not a small mistake. And that scares people no end. Um, is that something you're aware of? And, you know, how do you overcome that? Yeah, um, so the, the, the leading proposition, if you like, the proposition that, that gets the most attention is this idea of putting particles into the upper atmosphere. This is known as stratospheric aerosol injection. And a stratospheric aerosol injection would done at a massive scale, tons and tons and tons of sulfate particles, for instance, being put into the upper atmosphere. Um, then potentially some negative side effects could be seen, right? The, the, the bigger the intervention, um, the higher the risk. But as we, as we just discussed, there are also massive risks attached to climate change. As the world is getting warmer, as we blow through 1.5 up to two degrees of warming, um, on our way potentially to five to six degrees of warming above pre-industrial averages by the end of the century, then it's just gonna become a, a much more turbulent and dangerous world. Uh, and so when we're, when we're talking about risks, it's important to look at not just the risks attached to a particular geoengineering idea, but looking at that risk that's, uh, as opposed to the risk of climate change running away, right? Um, and when we look at those two things side by side, um, some scientists, some policymakers are saying geoengineering might be something that needs to be utilized, even if there are risks attached to it. Um, that's, that's, what, that's what my work is really about trying to understand. Um, and how do you start to shape things like geoengineering so that they can be positive rather than negative? Uh, and you... you um... You have also worked, or you are uh, still working, as I understood, on a project about new scenarios and models for climate engineering. And yeah. um, what is this project about? Uh, because I guess it's, uh, yes, please. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so so the, you, you talked about the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. When the IPCC tells us about the future, um, they do so through computer forecasts. Right? When scientists are trying to understand where this uh, climate changed world is taking us, um, it's through computer models. Um, and so what, what we're looking to do with this project that I'm a part of now is to develop a, a type of 
climate change model that better integrates um, geoengineering options um, and also carbon removal options so that when we look into the future, we can have a better understanding of how those tools might have a role to play or not. But, but uh, as I imagine, um, it is, uh, it is um, a question of uh, collaboration, not as a, a collaboration uh, between and among uh, not only researchers, but government, big institutions. Uh, is this a challenge and what kind of possibilities do we really have to implement such big projects on a worldwide level, actually? Yeah, so when, when it comes to modeling, um, there, are, there are lots and lots of different modeling groups com, um, composed in different ways around the world, um, all working towards the same aim, which is how do we best understand what our options are um, and what the challenges are into the future. Um, there is lots of coordination between these groups. We're getting a chance to, to kind of do our work alongside lots of other efforts. Um, when it comes to geoengineering itself, um, you know, the, 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 one of the things about climate change is that, of course, it really is a global challenge. It's, it's not something that any one person alone can tackle or any one country alone can take on. Uh, and so if we're really going to tackle something of the magnitude of climate change, then it needs global coordinated activity, right? And that's, that's very much true when it comes to geoengineering. But here's the kicker, right? Here's the interesting thing. Um, some folks have suggested that, you know, that leading proposition that I mentioned, putting particles up into the atmosphere, that could be undertaken potentially by one country or, or maybe just by one rich individual, a Richard Branson type or, a, you know, some other, um, person with a big fleet of aircraft could start flying aircraft around and putting sulfate particles into the atmosphere. Um, that would be an, an interesting thing for the planet because that would probably have a cooling effect, um, but not a cooling effect that we've all agreed to be a part of, right? And so when I say that you need global coordination, when it comes to something like geoengineering, much of that coordination is about what is responsible behavior in the face of this type of challenge and, and with the utilization of these types of technologies. But that's a catch-22 situation, really. You have collaboration between scientists. But how do you get that collaboration? Or is this something that you don't look into? But how do you get that collaboration at a world level? How do you get the governance that you need? Because you're right, people could use it as a weapon. They could do it in one part of the world and not another. It could be part of... Uh, you know, war by other means. Um, and yet you need that collaboration at, at the global level, at a government level. Are you yeah. optimistic that you can get that? Um, well, you know, I'm pretty realistic about, about the, the potential for any sort of large scale um, international collaboration at this moment. I mean, the world's a pretty fractured and fragmented place. And one of the things that we're learning with COVID is that there isn't good cooperation, even in the face of like existential and obvious crisis. Uh, and so when it, when it comes to something like geoengineering, which most policymakers haven't heard of, and those that have heard of, think of as, you know, something that's going to be coming down the pike, but isn't necessarily here with us today. Um, it, is, it is kind of hard to generate the types of conversations and interactions that are needed right now. Um, but ultimately, you know, human beings have shown a track record of being able to you know, maybe this is too optimistic, but rise to the occasion when required. Uh, and we certainly cooperate over many challenging things at the international level. Um, this, this is a form of climate change response. And we already have international mechanisms, institutions, 
uh, forms of relationship that enable conversation about um, something like geoengineering. So, you know, but I'm, I'm hopeful we can get there. But right now we are in a, in a crisis, another type of crisis, of course. And mm -hmm. if you observe what is going on uh, right now um, on a worldwide level, a global level, how people or countries are collaborating or not collaborating with each other, what is the lesson learned or not learned here for, for thinking about the climate challenge? Yeah, I can't, I can't think of too many positive lessons, Marina, that, that come out of the current moment, right? Um, so his, his, if, if, there's a, if there's a positive way to look at it, it, it is that human beings have the potential for learning. And maybe, maybe somehow collectively we'll learn from this about the need to be prepared for bad things. Climate change is a really bad thing. Um, and it's not just over the horizon, it's actually here with us today. And there are lots of people already being impacted in devastating fashion by a changing climatic system, right? And so it, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, maybe, maybe we'll learn that it's essential that we get along and that we learn to cooperate. But one of the things that the coronavirus thing has shown us is that in most countries, and certainly here in the UK, the politicians are now deferring to the experts. The politicians are unsure, they don't know how to approach this topic and many of the answers are coming from the medical people and the scientific people do you see that happening in this area in climate change and does it mean that scientists have to learn how to communicate to a general public because often they have their own special speak and they're not often very good at communicating to a general public you're an exception, but maybe, I say that, you are an exception, but there are, I'm sure there are many, and there are many who are not. Look, I'm, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., where politicians are very much not deferring to expertise right now. Right? We, have a, we have a very different situation when it comes to the way our country is, uh, is handling the COVID situation, but I take your point. Um, yeah, uh, so, so something like geoengineering, is very much a technocratic enterprise, right? Um, it would require massive amounts of expertise being brought to bear, and there would have to be learning if it were to be trialed. There'd have to be a lot of learning and a lot of faith in what the scientists are telling us about what's going well, what's going wrong, what needs to be turned on, what needs to be turned off, right? Um, and so that, that the, the sorts of decisions that would be needed around geoengineering are not political decisions in the first order. The first order decisions are scientific ones. Right? And so there, there would need to be some faith placed in a scientific community if this were ever to be advanced. Um, otherwise, you know, trying, trying to do something like geoengineering based on political whim would just be a recipe for disaster. Uh, and so you're, you're right, Francis, I think that um, the relationships between the scientific community, policymakers, and society writ large, uh, you know, we're, we're at a moment now where there's a, a lot of distrust from science, from society, in politicians and in scientists. At least that's that's certainly the case in the United States, and I, I can imagine it's also the case where you are. Uh, and that's 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 a that's a hard kind of uh, hard place to start from in a conversation like this. And uh, perhaps we we already mentioned it, but there are different paths or these different possibilities to to try to cope with the new situation, climate challenge. And um, 
how do you see it? Because it, I think that if the scientific community offers different paths, that it's going to become even more difficult to, you know, to follow a path because we do not have one that is um, the right one. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful point. And so that's, that's where politics comes into play. Right? And so when I'm, when I'm thinking about politics here, I'm thinking about politics in its, in its biggest sense. That is, how do we all come to decisions about our lives together? Um, so scientists can say, yeah, now scientists can say there are lots of different potential worlds compatible with 1.5 degrees. Okay, that's again, that's the target that the Paris Agreement puts in place, no more than 1.5 degrees of warming above pre-industrial averages. We could get there by massive technological change um, that cleans up our energy systems, electrifies all the vehicles, changes the food system, technology alone could solve these problems for us. Or maybe we could get there through massive social change. People stop flying so much, people stop buying stuff they don't need, smaller families, we live closer to home, right? Um, all, of, all of those measures if done collectively could get us to 1.5. But scientists can't tell us which of those options is the best one, right? Those, those, are, those, are, those are societal decisions, those are political decisions. Yeah, go ahead. But if I would ask you, how do you see the world in 10 years? As a, how do you think that it's going to be and how would you like to have it? I'm struggling to see the world in 10 days right now. <laughs> um, but so, uh, so yeah. Um, but so, so um, one, one way to think about that 10 year target is just to look at where the climate trajectory is pointing. So we're, we're 10 years away from 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial averages at current emission rates. If we just stay on business as usual pathways, we've got 10 years before we've blown through that target which the international community has agreed to. Um, if you project out another 20 or 30 years, um, then we're through two degrees on our way to five to six degrees of warming. Five degrees Celsius colder was the last ice age. Five degrees Celsius warmer is a science fiction world. Um, and so where we have to be in 10 years from now is getting serious. You know, that's the, we're, we're kind of way past the point now with climate change where small actions taken by small groups of people are going to be enough. We need big actions taken by just about everybody at this point, if we're going to have a chance. Okay. We, we need to create that chance for sure. But you said, you know, the choice that has to be made in answer to Rina, Narina is a societal and a political situation politicians and society have to make that but you in a way have actually helped haven't you in terms of thinking about global governance you've said and you've argued in your articles that there are a number of steps that we need to take first of all we've got to look at adaption and mitigation first secondly we've got to look at the risks burdens and benefits and that these should be transparent and there also has to be responsible knowledge creation do you want to tell us what that is in, in, in terms of how you think that can help the message to get across to politicians and to people. Yeah, when, when it comes to talking with policymakers and politicians about something like geoengineering, it's important to stick to some top line messages and you've started to recite them there. So the first message is geoengineering alone is just a stupid idea. Um, mitigation, adaptation have to come first. Geoengineering is the best to supplement. Um, the second thing is, is that geoengineering is a long-term proposition. At the moment, we're at the early stages of research. And so there's an opportunity to get out ahead of this thing and to start putting the rules of the road in place. 
And you do that by ensuring transparency, ensuring scientific cooperation, uh, and making sure that uh, the, the actors in the international community with the capacity to take action are aware of what's going on, right? A lot of this is just a knowledge game. Um, and so we and other colleagues spend a lot of time briefing politicians and policymakers uh, and making sure that people engaged in the international conversation have the information they need. Um, and then a, the third piece of this is about making sure that the, the kind of stitching, if you like, is in place so that the international community can make decisions when they're required to around geoengineering. Um, and so having secretariats of major organizations and institutions aware of what's going on um, and having uh, the scientific community that they can turn to uh, in order to make good decisions is going to be essential. Um, sorry, it's really a, a question out of curiosity. What mm. kind of um, time frame are we speaking about um, when we speak about uh, geoengineering? So when would we, could we do it with the technology that we have today? When could we start doing something like this? Because, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So again, with stratospheric aerosol injection, that most, um, that most uh, talked about example, by putting particles into the upper atmosphere. You know, some folks say you could probably do that within two or three years if you wanted to. If you, you, know, you being, uh, you know, a country like China or Brazil or Russia or the United States, United Kingdom, um, could just go ahead, have a crash scientific program, could develop the aircraft and could start doing it. To do it safely and to do it with some understanding of what the implications would be, you'd need to put in place measurements and testing and small scale trials before anything big happened. That's a 10 or 20 year proposition. Yeah, so, so you, could, you could do it quickly. That would be a bad idea. Doing it properly, if, if, we, if we were ever to try it, um, would be a much longer term idea. Because I think this is, this, these are the kind of uh, messages that we have to, to get out. Because some, when I read here as a normal person, I read, oh, we have geoengineering. And so I then have the hope that technology could help us pretty quickly. And it is quick, but it is perhaps not quick enough if we do not act with these mitigations. That's right. This, this is no kind of silver bullet or get out of jail free card or, or pick your metaphor. Right? This, is, this is something that will only be used in small measure over long time frames. It's not going to solve the problem. But, but there are some people who think it is a silver bullet for them. And that may be people who don't want to reduce carbon emissions. Um, right. They might look upon geoengineering as what saves their business, what saves them. And therefore, they're going to promote geoengineering and not do anything about reducing emissions. Um, and so in a way, unless you're successful, you could end up doing the opposite to what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that, that gets kind of back to that proposition that you just uh, mentioned earlier, Francis, which is that mitigation and adaptation have to come first. That's an easy thing to say. It's a much harder thing to actually make real um, because, you know, we've got, a, we've got a world where we're all invested in digging up every last piece of coal, finding every last drop of oil and setting it on fire. But that's the world we live in. And there are some very powerful interests that are pushing us in that direction. Uh, and so if, um, if geoengineering is ever sold as something which uh, means that we don't have to change anything else about our lives, then that's a super dangerous place to be. There, there are um, many, uh, for example, big oil companies investing also in project for 
for this kind of uh, not geoengineering, but for trying to, to find a, a solution that it's, has nothing to do with uh, mitigations, of course. Yeah, when it, when it comes to the, the solar radiation management geoengineering that we're talking about, um, there, there's been some whisper about oil company interest, but I they haven't seen much evidence of it. Um, when it comes to carbon removal, this yes, idea that carbon might be taken out of the atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, all, com all, all companies are super interested in that idea um, because it, it basically fits with the business model, right? If you're gonna, if you're gonna um, pull stuff out of the earth and set it on fire and release carbon dioxide, then wow, wouldn't it be great if you could also get paid for pulling the carbon dioxide back out and putting it back under the earth, right? It would, it would, it would just be a, a neat way for oil companies to make even more money out of the fossil fuel age. So how do we overcome that dilemma? I mean, how do we say, look, you know, we can't go back, we can't put the genie back in the box, you know, we've got to yep. go forward. How can scientists help us do that? Or are there scientists who will say, yes, corporations can do that? Yeah, when it, when it comes to corporate activism, and that's a pretty ferocious conversation. Um, we, we spend a lot of time uh, in my work in Washington, D.C., talking with uh, civil society organizations, non-governmental organizations. And there are some uh, environmental groups who just don't want to talk at all with the oil companies. They think it's the worst possible thing to do. It's the oil companies that in large measure got us into this mess. Uh, and to imagine that oil companies can be a part of the answer, it just doesn't compute. Um, then you've got other environmental groups who are saying, well, we're at a point now where we've all got to just find a way to work together and get stuff done. And so if all companies can develop the technologies and the processes and government can chip in money um, and we've got university researchers all kind of pulling in the same direction, that's what it's going to take. And so I, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, all I know is that you can't hand all the power to the oil companies and expect good things to happen. So even in partnership with the oil companies, it's going to require lots of societal and government oversight, um, you know, and lots of pressure. Uh, to make sure that uh, oil companies ultimately uh, do do positive things around climate. Yeah, but because in the end, it's of course also, um, sometimes I smile when I read about oil companies, they are the ones who are getting the oil out of the soil. But in the end, they are, they are each of us using the oil that the companies put out of the soil. As I mean, if we wouldn't use the oil, then the company wouldn't do it. So this uh, um, responsibility at a personal level on one hand, and if you if you see uh, right now people being at home, uh, forced to be at home and not to be able, but as this kind of hope that when we will be out of this crisis that we keep some something from this crisis, like not flying everywhere and using another kind of reading to save the planet. Yeah, so, so, so two points in response. So one, one thing that some colleagues and I have been concerned about um, is what one of my colleagues calls the individualization of responsibility. So I, I absolutely agree that we're all kind of part of a system where when we turn on the lights, we're, we're using fossil fuels, when we hop in our vehicles and so forth. Um, but to imagine that all of the responsibility has to fall on us to make better decisions, um, lets those who have much more power in the system off the hook, right? If we had better options available to us when it came to energy production, that would be a, a, a far better, uh, more beneficial world. 
And so, yeah, I think it's important for us to kind of do the right thing, to be parts of communities that are doing the right thing. And we've also got to hold political actors and oil companies and these other powerful actors really to account, make them do the right thing. So, um, yeah. yeah, Francis, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, no, finish off because we're getting very close to the end. So finish your point on. Sure. So just, I mean, just, uh, just thinking about the COVID situation, right, lots of people have pointed out that uh, because people are staying close at home, because the airlines are basically shut down, we're seeing a massive reduction in energy use. Greenhouse gas emissions have gone down by, in some places, much as much as a, much as a quarter um, over where we were at this time last year. Um, and so maybe there's a way to hold on to pieces of what we're learning from this um, when, it comes, when it comes to coming out the other side. What we've learned from prior shocks, though, is that people like to get back to the way things were. Um, so after the 2008 recession, um, fossil fuel consumption actually went up by 5% um, over the prior year, immediately after um, the, the recession started to withdraw, because people just want to get on with things. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to require concerted effort for us to learn and for us to be able to put in place those learnings about what's good about the current moment, even as we face all the horrors of it. You know, there's something nice about being being able to be closer to family and be able to pay attention to the things that actually matter. Exactly. But learning, you know, it's important that we learn, but how do we learn together? And that is one of the points I think you mentioned in some of your papers. How do we get civic engagement? How do we involve people so that, you know, we don't look, our, look at ourselves as being in little boxes, each with our specialism, each with our activism, that we can bring it together, there's some coordination and some, there's some coherent way of doing this. Well, the, the sort of service you're providing here, Francis, is a piece of that, right? I mean, it's, it's easy enough for me to be a part of webinars with other scientists talking to scientists, <clears throat> but actually having opportunity for, for these sorts of conversations um, that, that go broader than that are, are super important. Um, and, you know, the, the piece of this is not just focusing on the bad, but also focusing on the possibility that the, the world looks bleak at the moment, but it's, it's not always a dark place. And so when you know, the, the, the environmental conversation has so much been about disaster, we need to instead start looking for positive potential in the future. Okay, well, we sort of come to the end, but before we do, I mean, if people wanted to know more about what you're doing or contact you, how would they go about doing that? Well, search for Simon Nicholson at American University Online. You'll find my website, you'll find my email address. We have two different groups set up at American University, the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment and the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy. Both have a web presence, um, would be happy to engage with folks. Okay, well, that, that's great. Well, thank, thank you very much for doing it because we dealt with a subject that people very often at a civil society level don't touch because they're, they're not sure that they're afraid of it. And I think you've helped a lot in explaining very lucidly in very simple language what, you know, the situation is. So I think it's been a really, really interview, interesting interview and important one and valuable one. So thank you for doing it, Simon. And thank you, Narina, for helping as well. So that's really great. So we'll end this uh, webinar interview now.